Before we get started, Pastor Patty has some clipboards. Um, she's gonna pass around. Uh, we need some help in the services. Um, just signing up to like read scripture. Um, so hopefully you sign up for one. Um, we're gonna be here till Jesus comes back. So we don't know how long that'll be. So we just put a couple months on and hopefully we can fill it up. Um, this morning I'm continuing our series through the book of Micah. We're on um, chapter six, and, and this is um, a chapter that probably has the most familiar verse in Micah, a verse that we kind of pulled and are using as our, our theme verse to kind of encapsulate the, the whole book, right? Walk humbly with your God. So the idea of Micah 6, 8, um, I always say that, like, this was the joy of Sunday school. You know, I thought I was memorizing Bible verses for treats and to go to camp. And now, 30 years later, I still remember these verses. And, and, and I think a lot of people, when they read Micah, they come to this chapter. And so what we've been asking throughout this series is, but what does it mean to, to walk humbly with God? When, when, when we as God's people are unfaithful or when God's judgment is earned and it's coming, what does it mean to, to walk humbly with God when, when leaders let us down? when rich seem to be getting richer on the backs of the poor? What does it mean to walk humbly with God when, when we as God's people, or even the prophets and leaders and priests are, are violating God's law? Now, in Micah chapter 6, what he does and what you've seen, uh, we've kind of framed it throughout, is, is Micah has actually been building quite a case uh, against Israel. And in chapter 6, it doesn't take much for you to know that in chapter 6, we enter into the courtroom. Well, there's a lot of steps before you get to the courtroom, and that's what you have in the first five chapters. So, so I want you to do a little bit of a, a, a exercise for me. Now, I know none of you would ever do such a thing like I'm going to propose, so you're going to have to use your imagination. You know, none of you are heathens who would do such a thing. So I, I just know, now I'm speaking to those of you who drive. If you don't drive, then you're extra innocent of this. But those of you who drive would never do such a thing, but we're just using our imagination to help us get some framing before we enter this chapter. Now, imagine, you know, you're driving one day and you uh, run a stop sign. And I'm not saying you miss it and you hit the brake late. I mean, you just ran right through it, right? Um, and as you run through, not you, sorry, I, I shouldn't have said you. This imaginary person we're speaking of, this heathen who would do such a thing, not you because you would never do that, right? So imagine this heathen of a person runs a stop sign, right? And they not only run it, they run it so badly that like when the police pulls up, like they don't even feel bad. They're just like, yeah, I got caught. Like that was really, really bad, right? So they pull over, the police comes over. Um, they don't have an excuse. They're like, I ran it. You know, I'm just going to take my ticket. Well, when the police comes over, instead of, of writing a ticket, it said, hey, you okay? What's going on? And it's just like, yeah, I just missed it. You know, just blew right through it. And it's like, oh, and the police basically gives you a warning. Like, instead of giving you a ticket for speeding through a school zone like you were and running the stop sign, they're like, you know what? You're having a hard day. It's okay. We're just going to give you grace, right? You're good to go, right? Now, most of us, not you, because, again, this is an imaginary person, right? Most of us would be like, this is amazing, right? But what the imaginary person does is from that day of getting a warning, instead of embracing that freedom and being like, you know what, I will stop running stop signs. This person, again, not you, you would never do such a thing, right? This person is using their freedom, right, to do whatever they want, even though it's hurting other people. So now they're like, you know what? Not only did I have ran that stop sign, but I know three, four other spots in the city that there are no cops, and I could just run, you know? So from then on, they're using their freedom and their privilege to just run stop sign after stop sign after stop sign. Unbeknownst to them, right, 
there's cameras in the city who've been capturing this, right? Unbeknownst to them that like the camera is not only getting your license plate every time you get the stop sign, but it's documenting everything. And so one day the, the, the heathen driver runs through the stop sign again, and guess who pulls them over? The same officer. And this time when the officer comes, it, it's, it's not just you get a warning, you actually get a ticket. And that ticket comes with an invitation, if you will, to go to court, where the formal charges will be brought against you, where for, for the last months that you've been running this stop sign, uh, the lawyers call this discovery, right? Where they've been gathering evidence that they're going to give of all the times you ran the stop sign, of how you caused accidents, but you didn't care because you kept going, of how people got hurt, but you just kept driving along, how everything seemed to be going with you, right? And so as you're getting ready to go to court, you start thinking, it's like, well, well, what will my judgment be? What's the resolution, you know? You might call a friend who's a lawyer and be like, what's ahead of me, right? But, but, but at this trial, in court, you know that there will be an accuser, that you're the accused, there might be lawyers involved, there's going to be a judge, but the case is happening, right? And if you look at Micah's first five chapters, this is what's happened, right? Micah begins in chapter one by opening the case by saying, listen, for 500 years, we've been running God's stop sign, right? Like for 500 years, we have been sinning against God. We as a nation, as a people, as God's chosen people, we have fallen short. And because of that, like, there's going to be punishment coming. You would think that would be enough, right? But then for 10 to 20 years after the initial announcement, Micah keeps saying, stop running stop sign. Stop disobeying God's law. Stop sinning against God. And by the time you get to chapter 2, there's a formal charge. So before there's a warning, right? And now there's the indictment in chapter 2 where Micah's like, listen, these are all the ways we've sinned against God. And by the time you get to chapter 3, there's indictment and discovery where Micah is bringing all the evidence of how God's people have gotten corrupt, or how the leaders have been corrupt, how they violated not only God's law, but they violated God's people. And last week, we took a deep breath a little bit, what Tolkien calls the you catastrophe, which is when everything's so terrible in the story, but then there's like good news, right? It's like after you have the thunderstorm and the sun shining through that cloud, you feel a little bit of good news. But the you catastrophe that Micah predicts is that not only is a day coming, right, where God will send his Messiah to save us and to make all things right, but we can have hope that no matter what we're going through today, we win in the end. The Messiah is coming. But then we got to chapter 6, and you still got to deal with the trial. <laughs> and in this trial, it's not just, you know, they've been accruing all this evidence and discovery. But what's fascinating is that the judge, who is God, is also the one who's accusing us. And Micah is not just God's lawyer, but Micah is the, the, the mouthpiece who God calls to, to call them back and remind them all the ways they fell short. And so when you get to chapter 6, you get God putting his people on trial, but the second half you get judgment and resolution. Now, when I said that, you know, this is a very familiar passage in Micah, when we started my first sermon, when we started the pandemic, when we started, when the pandemic started, I don't want to, you know, we didn't start it, you know? When the pandemic started, we all kind of, you know, the first sermon I preached, um, I called it Shalom in the Season of Panic, right? And I like to go back to that sermon every now and then. So I look at myself, I was like, wow, look at him, so young and stress-free, you know? That boy did not know what was coming. Look at him. He thinks this will be over in a month or two. Look at him. Such joy in his face. Shalom. And I'm like, sometimes I watch that sermon, I want to tell myself, it's like, you do not know what's coming, you know? 
Um, but, but, but one of the challenges, though, of a passage that's so familiar to us is that like we're like, we get it. We know what he's saying. But kind of what I want us to challenge as we go back into Micah 6 today, though, is I want us to think about two things, right? Because in this, Micah's going to talk about how God's provided for us and then the requirements of what it means to follow God. But as we read through and as we go through and work through this chapter, I want you to ask yourself two questions, right? What does it mean that I will stand before God? Because everything we've talked about has been kind of generic, right? This is how God's people have sinned. This is how the leaders have led us astray. This is how our institutions fail us. This is how it, today I want to focus on you. What does it mean that I will stand before God? And the, the challenge of that is that for most of us, if we think about that, we think about it at the end, right? On the other shore, when Jesus comes back or when we go home to glory, right? We think about it at the end. But Micah seems to believe that before you get to the end, that in the now, we reap what we sow. That the accountability doesn't just happen when we stand before God in the end, but some of that might be happening now. So what does it mean that I'll stand before God, but what does it mean that God's calling me to be accountable today? So that's the framework. As we go into this case, into this trial, what does accountability before God for me look like? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Micah chapter 6. I'll be reading the whole chapter. We'll have it up front so you can follow there as well or in your Bibles, of course. Starting at verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought, you out of, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent you Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your, your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Head, heed the rod and, and the one who appointed it. Am I to still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, your wicked house and, and the short ephah which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest skills, with a bag of false weights? You rich people are violent. Your, vi your inhabitants are liars and the, their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat and not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statues of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin. 
and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. Let's pray. A God who is judge, we thank you that we are not worthy to even stand before you. We thank you that even though we have fallen short, that we continue to miss the mark, that we sin, that we harm not only our relationship with you, but by violating your law, we also violate others. God who is judge, we thank you that you're holy, but we also thank you that you're merciful. We thank you that you see the injustices that we perpetuate or allow or, or turn a blind eye to, and you call us for more. But God, we pray now that we may not only see your justice, but that we may be willing to work for your justice. God who loves us, teach us how to love. Teach us how to see one another the way you see us. Teach us how to be faithful because you are faithful. God, our Father, we thank you that though you are the gracious judge, though we are not worthy of your mercy, though we are not worthy of your grace, you gift it to us anyway. So, Lord, be our peace. Teach us mercy. Teach us justice. Help us to know that accountability before you is not something that should simply terrify us, but it should motivate us to look like you. So, Father, equip us, empower us, call us, drive us, move us, make us like you, so that the world may see our light and glorify you, that your kingdom may come and your will may be done through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for your kingdom come. Amen? Here in chapter 6, Micah is reciting, and what's fascinating to me about this trial is that when God finally puts his people on trial, when God finally calls everyone who's in Israel who will listen to trial, he has given the warnings, he has brought the indictments, he has brought the charges, but when God chooses to bring Israel to trial, it's the mountains and the hills that he calls as witnesses. And I think there's something profound about that, because we as people only live but a day, but the mountains outlive us, the trees outlive us, the hills outlive us. So God is talking about five centuries plus of disobedience, and he chooses the, the mountains and the hills as his witnesses. And what's profound about that for me is not only do they outlive us, but they see everything. And the challenge for us is to remember that witnesses not only observe, but they speak Right? So the witnesses have not only observed everything that God's people have done and haven't done, but they speak. And I think even in our day and age, they speak to us too. When we're talking about shalom, we said that shalom has to be peace and things made right between me and God, but also peace and things made right between me and creation, between my sister and brother, even in myself. And so if we look at creation, and I think a lot of us in this world, we get it wrong by, by maybe sometimes worshiping the creation and not the creator. But I think another thing we get wrong is to think that the creation is simply for us instead of us having to steward and care for the creation. So if the creation is the witness, not only have they observed what we're done, they speak. And I think we live in a time where creation is speaking to us where our consumption is leading to famine, where our consumption is leading to flooding, where our consumption is leading to the creation falling apart. 
So Micah, when we come into this trial, says, I need you to remember that creation is God's witnesses. And as God's witnesses, it observes and it speaks to you. But God now is the one who's speaking. And I love that when God brings us to trial, the first thing that God wants to do is to cite his record. And what a record it is. God begins by reminding them that it is me who brought you out of Egypt. Why is this significant? It's significant because it's a reminder to them that God sees. That in the midst of their struggle, God saw them. In the midst of their enslavement, God saw them. When they were cold and outside and oppressed and marginalized, God saw them. And not only did God see them, he rescued them. And I think for a lot of us, right, this is not something that we grew up. We maybe read the Exodus story like, well, that's God's people. That's cool. That's awesome. But I think one of the greatest gifts that black Christians have given, not just to American and Western Christianity, but to all of Christianity as a whole, is they've reminded us that God is on the side of the oppressed. There was a time in this country, not only that we had slavery, but we knew the story. We knew you can't read the Exodus story and think God's on the side of the plantation owner. We knew you couldn't read the story and be like, yeah, God, God really is for the person who's whipping and abusing people. And the thing that one of the gifts that black Christians gave is that they said, listen, when we hear that story about Moses going down into Egypt and bringing us out, we see a God who's on the side of the oppressed. And a lot of white Christians knew this, so they even took that story out of the Bible, right? They took those stories out, and it was the black Christians who said, no, 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 but this is who God is. I think it's beautiful that in citing his record, God wants us to know, when you were oppressed, I was with you. When you were struggling, I was with you. When you were beaten down, I was with you. When you were lonely and you felt no one can hear you, I was with you. What a blessing we have. What a privilege we have that our God sees us. And there's some of us in this room this morning who maybe don't feel seen, don't feel heard, don't feel like we matter, who maybe are facing the other side of oppression, who maybe don't know if God even cares. The story of the exodus in Egypt is a reminder that God sees and God rescues. And then he talks about how I've sent you leaders. And he cites three of them. He could have cited so much more. He cites Moses, the lawgiver, the privileged one who gives up his privilege to go and rescue his people through the power of God, the lawgiver. He also cites Aaron, right, who is not only the, the father of the priesthood, but this reminder that God desires us to live in a way that brings and, and brings others to glorify God, right? But I also love that in this seminal chapter, he cites Miriam. And that's important, right? Because there's still a lot of people who don't believe that, that God calls women to ministry too, right? Like this is like, I love when we talk about this because some people are like, your church is different. You know, I was like, yeah, most of my staff is women. Like I had a, like when Ryan came, I was like, cool, there's more than one now, Hey, right? We got another token male. Welcome to the team, guy. But the thing is, right, God intentionally chooses Miriam, not just because she's in the family, but because Moses gave the law. Aaron gave the priesthood, but it's Miriam who gave the praise. It's Miriam who taught them that when God does something, sing your praises to the Lord. And I think that's beautiful because God wants them to know, not only did I rescue you, but I sent leaders to carry you, to teach you, to bring you along. And then he says something that I missed for a while, right? He says, remember the journey from Shittum to, to Gilgal. 
And it's a reminder to us that our God is the God of the journey. That our God is the God, not just of the struggle, but of the journey. That God has taken you from that cold and dry and lonely wilderness to the promised land. And it's a reminder to us that whatever journey we're on, God is with us. And he reminds them there was a time where Moab wanted to strike you down and destroy you. I was with you. There was a time where you thought you had no hope. I was with you. There was a time when the wilderness was overwhelming. I was with you. How grateful are we this morning that we have a God who promises to be with us no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter what we're facing, God is with us now. And after, after he sets all of this up, he reminds them that, yes, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I've sent you the leaders. I've been with you on the journey. I've protected you from sure destruction. Yet you come to me with empty worship and empty praise. And he gives them a whole spectrum. He says, some of you buy calves, but your heart's not in it. Some of you think that, you know, because you have a little bit of money, you can buy rivers of oil and you can buy, you know, thousands of rams, right? But your heart's not in it. Some of you may even think, you know, I will give you my firstborn, right? Because remember, the other part of the Exodus was this promise, right? That not only would God pass over, but that every family's firstborn belonged to God. And God would be like, some of you might even offer up your firstborn, but your heart's not in it. And as this reminder to us that God seems to think it is not just going with the motions that gets him excited. It's not just doing what you think you ought to be doing that moves God. It's whether or not your heart is in it. So when you live and you worship God, is your heart truly in it? And I'm not just talking about Sunday morning. I'm talking about Monday morning in school. I'm talking about Tuesday afternoon at work with that annoying person who just won't leave you alone. I'm talking about the family members that you don't get along with who have excommunicated you or there's no relationship. I'm talking about how are you living in a way that God has been worshipped through you. Where is your heart and how is that translating in work, in play, in family, in neighborhood, in community, in city? Because God seems to believe that if your heart is not in it, if you're not doing it to the best of your ability, he wants no part of it. It doesn't matter if it's a calf. It doesn't matter if it's rams. It doesn't matter what sacrifice. God seems to believe that to obey is better than sacrifice. And empty worship is not worship at all. And so then the people are forced to ask, right, if our worship isn't good enough, and God says, no, 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 not only is it not good enough, it'll never be good enough if your heart's not in it, if you're not fully committed to me. So they said, well, well what do you require of us? And then God invites I need you to do justice like I do justice. I need you to do mercy like I do mercy. And I need you to do peace as I do peace. Again, this is a verse I memorized as a kid. But I think this might be the most important verse in the entire Old Testament. And I think the reason is the entire verse is that if you want to say, what does God ask from me? That's the question. And then you get the answer. And the answer, we lose a lot of it in the English. But to Micah, God says to the people, or through Micah, God says to the people, what do I require of you? I need you to do my mishpat. I need you to love like my love with my hesed. And I need you to walk in shalom. 
The mishpah is this call and this reminder that God desires all his people to be doing justice and righteousness. In light of Micah, we've seen all the injustice, right? All the ways people are being taken advantage of, all the ways that society and leaders are letting them down. And so Micah's reminder is when we think about God's justice, it's not even about what we think is just. The standard isn't treat people how you want to be treated. The standard isn't even treat people better than you want to be treated. The standard is do and love people the way God loves them. The justice lever is not you, it's God. What God says is just is what you must align with. So when we say we're doing God's justice, it's an active call, right, to not only turn, to stop turning a blind eye to injustice, to stop propping up people and leaders who do injustice, but to actually say, God, what little bit can I do to bring justice to my world? Because the standard isn't me, the standard is God. If there's oppression that I see and I do nothing about it, am I being faithful to God's justice? And then he says, I need you to love with my hesed. Some translations will say unfailing love. Some will call it loving kindness. In the New Testament, we see it show up as agape. When God calls us to love, the way God defines love is by how God loves. Because here's the thing. As a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a cousin, as a son, I can love as best as I can. But it will never touch God's love. And that's the standard we're called to do. When God says love, it's do you love the way God loves? A love that puts others first. A love that's sacrificial. A love that's literally going to be for the other person's greater good. Do you love the way I love? And then peace, shalom. And we've been talking about this for weeks now. Are we living in a way that we're bringing peace to our world? Are we living in a way that we're not destroying creation, but we're stewarding creation? That we're not destroying relationships, but we're building relationships? That we're not destroying ourselves, but we're building ourselves up? Are we living in a way that we're not destroying our relationship with God, but we're growing in the spirit? Are we living in a way that we're bringing shalom? And most of us as pastors, at least in my experience, we like to end the verse 8, right? Do God's justice. Love the way God's loved. Walk in shalom but we're still in trial. <laughs> the evidence has still been collected. We have still fall short. And I love when people are like, I just feel like God's so rash in the Old Testament. I'm like, yeah, he took 510 to 20 years to actually bring the people to trial for what they were doing wrong. Sounds like very knee-jerk to me. But after 520 years, God's still telling you the requirement, but you still reap what you sow. And that's the hard part about the second half of the chapter because God sits there and God questions whether he can forgive their sins. Not because it's not possible, but because God is saying, how can I see injustice and do nothing? How can you perpetuate justice and there's no punishment or reaping of what you've sown? How can I allow you to keep hurting and violating people? And so the conclusion of the trial is that you will reap what you've sown. I think this is important because I start off saying we go through this chapter, we need to think about accountability. What does it mean that I'll stand before God? What does it mean that God wants me to be accountable today? And the first thing I want us to hold on to as we think about accountability is that God calls us to look like God and not the world. And it sounds very basic, 
But that's the work. Because according to John, who is Jesus' best friend, it's simple as this, right? If you do what you know is right, you look like God. But then the opposite then also must be true. Because if I know something's right, and I don't do it, and I don't look like God, the only other option, according to John, is we look like the devil. So when we talk about justice, the reminder here is it's not just about I'm not to break God's law. God's concern isn't just the law. His concern is that when we violate the law, quite often we hurt the people around us. Quite often we perpetuate injustice. Quite often the masses suffer while we move on in our privilege. So are we doing justice, not just not violating the law, but are we actually not violating God's people? And are we loving the way God loves? Now, I've used this example before because I love it. One of my favorite names that God gives us in the Old Testament is that you are my treasured possession. And the best way I can, I can explain this is, you know, if you make your budget, right? Everyone should make a budget. I used to say some of us make budgets. No, everyone should make a budget. Um, if not, like, talk to Rodney. He's the treasurer. He'll help you. Like, He'll figure that part out with you. I don't even know if Rodney's here, but I just volunteered him, right? Everyone should have a budget. And your basic budget's gonna be, this is what's coming in. <laughs> and for most of us, the stress is, this is what's going out, <laughs> you know? And, and so you find that balance between, okay, this is what I'm tithing to, to the kingdom of God. This is what I'm paying for my bills. This is what I'm saving. You have all of that, right? But hopefully within your budget, you have a little bit of space, right? And for some of us, you know, especially when we're starting out, that little bit of space might be $10 to go to McDonald's or Chipotle, right? And it's just like, that's my happy time, right? Like, that's my treasure possession when I can sit there and eat my Chipotle. I have some friends who their treasure possession, I want to be my treasure possession. I'm like, wait, that's, that's what we're doing? Like, that's what we're buying this month. Wow, you should share more. I believe in the kingdom of sharing, you know? Talk about that later. But the idea of treasure possession, right, is this idea of like after everything's stripped away, the little bit that's left that I spend, right? So if your little treasure possession is the 10 bucks to go to Chipotle, me, it's Rita's, right? You can always talk about it. It's like I'm Philly through and through. You can always talk me into Rita's, right? But it's like when you take that bite of Rita's on a hot summer day, that feeling you feel, that's kind of how God feels about us. Right? That the little bit that's left to you, for you, that brings you so much joy, that's how God feels about us. The challenge for us is that's how God feels about every single one of us. That's how God feels. You know, some cultures say, no, I see the God in you, right? In my culture, we like to stress we're all kings and queens of God, right? We're the children of the king. C.S. Lewis said, if we looked at each other the way God looks at us, we would be forced to worship one another. And I say all that to say is, it's not enough for you to be like, God loves me. We have to realize God loves everyone. And how God values everyone ought to be how we value one another. And when God says, love the way I love, the way you love that treasure possession is the way you should be living to make everyone feel. And then we talk about peace, right? It's this reminder. When God says, walk humbly with me, he also says, you're my peacemakers. You're my light bringers. So what does it mean that we're living in a world where we ought to be making peace? Because the question becomes, are we? Am I making peace in my world? If that's too big, am I making peace in my, my, my workplace or my school? 
Am I making peace in, in my, my, my house or, or where I live, right? If that's too big, am I making peace in my family? If that's too big, is how can I bring peace? How can God bring peace to me so they can flow in me, out of me, into other people? Because that is the work. So when we think about this accountability, we get some comforts that God's with us in the journey. Praise God. Praise God. Whether you've been following him for 10 minutes or 50 years, God's been with you throughout the journey. Praise God. Whether you feel on fire for God or cold or skeptical or not sure, God is still with you. Praise God. Praise God that God wants the real you. That God doesn't care about you going with the motions or just doing what you think should be doing. That God actually wants your heart. God wants the real you. And I think what's fascinating is that most of us grew up in a society and culture where we're taught to hide our true selves. God seems to not only be able to hold your true self, but he can blossom it and grow it into the image of his son himself. But it requires obedience, not sacrifice. So as we think about accountability, as we think about what does it mean that I will stand before God, May we hold on to the comfort of God with us, of God being able to hold us, but may we be challenged to ask ourselves, how am I now in this space doing God's justice? How am I now in this space loving the people in my life the way God loves me? How am I now in this space bringing peace with family, with friends, with, with my, my neighbors, my workplace, my classmates, even my world. Because I think that accountability shows up in two ways. If we're faithful to God, we will see the fruit. But the hard word of Micah 6 is if we're not faithful to God, we will reap what we sow. Before we um, end the service today, we're going to take communion. Communion is a, is, a, is a reminder or a chance for us to not just come to the table and to not just remember what Jesus asked us to remember, but a chance to kind of, uh, for, for most of us, is a chance to kind of reassess, right? And so I want to give us maybe a minute, uh, as Pastor Patty's going to be joining me, but I want to give us maybe a minute to just to take a time and sit, right? And ask yourself some of these questions, right? What does it mean that I will be accountable and I'm accountable to God now? How is God calling me to do his justice? Who is God calling me to love the way he loves me? And in what area of my life is God calling me to peace? I'll give you a minute to hold on to that as we prepare for communion. In the next moments, we'll be sharing in communion together, celebrating the new life that we have in Jesus. Uh, we don't ask that you have to be a member of this church, but we do ask that you're a member of God's church and a follower of Jesus to partake in the bread and the cup. Um, as you came in, there was elements at the door, but if you didn't pick one up, um, because you didn't know it was communion or you didn't know what was going on, please raise your hand. We have some people in the back who can come up and give you. I think Chad here in the front. No, I'm not going to say your name. We have people here in the front, like Chad. 
you know. Um, so just raise your hand and we'll come around and, and, and help you out. Um, and, and as part of our communion practice, we also do some liturgy together. So our first part will be um, starting with a reading from Matthew 24. And these are congregational readings, so we'll, you're joining on your part. Let us join together in a responsive reading for communion taken from Matthew 24. The disciples asked Jesus, when will you come again? He said, only God. Jesus said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, nations rising up against nations, and famines and earthquakes in various places. He said, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Jesus said, keep watch, because he will come at an hour when you do not expect him. We now come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. We come to testify, not that we are perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. We come, not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. We come not only to remember his death, but also his resurrection and promise to return. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before us, let us lift up our minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to us the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son. Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life, we thank you that you freely and lovingly gave yourself for us. That through your sacrifice, through your brokenness, we've been healed. Through your suffering, we've known salvation. Lord, we thank you that on Calvary's tree, you died the death that was ours. Father God, gracious judge, we thank you for not only accepting the sacrifice of your son, but accepting it as, as payment for what we've done. So Lord, we take this bread now, reminder of not only your brokenness, but the bread that gives us life, true life in you. In your name we pray, amen. I have a little bit of liturgy here. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat, remembering he was born to be our savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, which is the Jewish... In the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing and told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you think of it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your son and for this cup, for the blood, um, the cup of blessing that you have poured on us. Help us to remember you and also to remember how blessed we are we ask that we thank you for this cup of blessing we thank you for the meaning of it and we just ask that you bless us in your name amen my brothers and sisters 
This cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup of blessing, remembering what he said. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Amen. Um, I'd like to invite the worship team back up as we're going to end with our, our final song. I'd like to also invite any of the pastors in the room to come up front. We'd love to pray for you um, for whatever you've got going on or anything. Maybe it's something you want to respond to in the service. We'd love to pray for you for that as well. But as we sing this song, may we be reminded of, of God's call, um, not only the accountability that God requires of us, but how we're being accountable. May we be motivated to not only trust in God's faithfulness, but because God is faithful, may we be faithful too, to do his justice, to love, and to, to bring peace. Let's stand and sing together.
one of the things I've noticed in the, the Old Testament um, is that God seems obsessed almost, right, with getting his people to remember. And, and I think, again, someone reminded me, it's like, well, that's why we do communion. I was like, yes, you're right, right? But in the Old Testament, every time something happens, God calls his people to remember. He's like, set up a stone, build an altar, build a city, like do something to remember. When you wake up in the morning, wear tassels on your clothes to remember I love you. Like everything God is calling his people to remember. And I think that's important because it's so easy for us to forget. It's so easy for us to forget how God's been faithful. Uh, this month, August, marks 15 years, right? 15 years ago, I moved to Harrisburg, and I wish I could tell you, if you had told me 15 years ago what I'd be doing in August 2022, I would probably have laughed in your face, right? But as I thought about that journey this week, I was reminded of, of God's faithfulness. I remembered all the things he's carried me through. So as we, as we get ready to leave and, and to think about, you know, what does it mean to do God's justice? What does it mean to love the way God loves? What does it mean to make peace? May we do all that, holding on to the simple truth that God is with us in the journey. And may we do a better job of remembering. So I don't know, maybe it's you go home, you put a rock on your, 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 your dresser tonight, and when you see that rock, you remember God's faithful. You think it's funny, but that's what they did in the Old Testament, so we're going to try it, right? Or, or, or for some of us, maybe it's simply getting a journal and, and writing all the way God's been good to you, and then remembering to actually go back to read the journal, right? But, but do something this week, right? And, and there's kids in here, so if they get tattoos, remember, this is not from me, this is from the Lord, right? But like, do something this week that'll help you remember God's faithfulness to you. Amen? Our Father, our God, we thank you so much that you, the gracious judge, you, the holy one, you, the one who's the arbiter of all that is good, is the same one who chooses to love us. So God, we thank you that you're with us in the journey whether we're in a cold and, and barren place, whether we feel lonely and so far from you, whether we're on fire, living for you and seeing you move in so many ways, whether we're somewhere in between, God, you're with us in the journey. So God, help us to be obedient. Help us to live and worship in a way where we're doing it with our whole heart, with the essence of our being. God, help us to follow your lead. We thank you that we do reap what we sow. We thank you that we are accountable for what we do and don't do, for what we say and don't say for the righteousness and justice we bring or don't bring, for the peace that we bring or don't bring, for the love we give or don't give. Lord, we are accountable for all of that. But we thank you that in the midst of all of this, God, you promise to keep showing us the way. We're grateful for your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, who left heaven to come to earth to not just remind us we'll win in the end, but to remind us that he sees our suffering, he sees our pain, he sees our sin, he sees our oppression, and he has designs on redeeming it all. Thank you for your sacrifice on Calvary's tree, Lord Jesus. Thank you for standing before the Father on our behalf as our mediator. Thank you for promising and one day coming back for us. Holy Spirit, we're grateful for you because you convict us and call us back home. You transform us into the image of Jesus. You mold us and empower us to do God's work. And God, we thank you even for us as a church, not just your people, but for specifically this church. Help us to nurture one another, disciple one another. Lord, we prayed for, for the students this morning. God, we pray that we can not only build them up, but to show them that this is a little slice of what the kingdom looks like. Because this is a place where we seek to do God's justice in a society that defines justice by color sometimes. 
is a place where we seek to, to empower one another in a church culture where women are still silent sometimes. That this is a place where we seek to love our neighbor, not because it makes us feel good or we're special, but because that's what God calls us to do. So help us to nurture and build and invest in young people and invest in one another so that we can do this work together. Because God, you've given us all a light, but that light shines brighter in you and it shines brighter together in you. So as we leave this day, Lord, help us to be committed to following you. Give us the comfort of knowing you're with us and help us to be bold enough to do your justice, to love like you loved, and to walk with you, to bring peace in our earth, peace in creation, peace in our families, peace in ourselves, peace in our cities and neighborhoods too. Thank you for your deep, deep love for us and help us to live lives that are not only accountable to you, but bring praise and glory to your name and your kingdom come so your will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name, God, we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.